Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press the star key on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead, ma'am. Oh, thank you so much, Cody, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between um, the CLL Society and Cancer Care. And I really want to thank um, this, uh, the CLL Society for their partnership with us on today's program. Um, we so appreciate their partnership, and you'll be hearing more about the CLL Society shortly. Um, and um, uh, it's really a pleasure to have all of you on the call today. And today's program is supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have, um, now we have um, wonderful um, uh, 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 participation on today's program, and we have over 385 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of participants from a number of different countries on the call today, from Belgium, Bangladesh, Canada, India, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is truly a global call. Um, and we are delighted to have all of you on this call today. It's really a really great pleasure to have you all on the call today. Um, and um, I, uh, again, want to thank um, um, the support from um, an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, for today's program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mazier Shadman. Dr. Shadman is Associate Professor, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Associate Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington, Associate Professor, Attending Physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Shadman will be addressing a review of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, significant role of testing and informing your treatment choices, first-line treatment options, and current perspectives on new and emerging treatments of CLL. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shabin. Hi. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner and Cancer Care for, for the invitation and for the opportunity. And it's my pleasure to have this chance of talking to some of our patients and caregivers who deal with the diagnosis of CLL or SLL. So uh, my task is to review the initial part of the journey from, from the time of diagnosis to, to the decision of starting treatment and some of the treatment choices. And before I start, uh, I would like to make it clear that when we talk about CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia, everything that I talk about also refers to patients with a diagnosis of SLL or a small lymphocytic lymphoma. These are basically two 
types of presentations of the same disease. So everything in terms of uh, markers of um, prognosis or treatment recommendations or treatment choices applies to both CLL or SLL, but I will be uh, using the word CLL just uh, for the purpose of this uh, quick um, presentation or talk. So as we all know, most of our patients are diagnosed with CLL incidentally. They either have a blood test or they have some kind of imaging for a different reason, or they may know the lymph node that's slightly enlarged. They present to their primary care physicians, and the, the first step, of course, is to deal with the new diagnosis of leukemia or lymphoma. And we are all interested in knowing what is the burden of disease, what's the disease stage, what needs to be done, what, what kind of test, do I need a bone marrow biopsy, do I need a PET scan. So most of the patients, and of course, uh, there is a case-by-case -case discussion that a physician and a patient will have, but majority of patients with this incidental finding, they won't need all these detailed workup. And we, we basically need to confirm the diagnosis for, diagnosis for patients with the CLL diagnosis it's very easy to do a simple blood test. The blood test is called flow cytometry, and it basically gives us a diagnosis. For, for a high percentage of patients, that's all we need for the initial diagnosis, and those are patients who don't have a symptom. They don't have any problem. They just have a diagnosis, as I said, most of the time incidentally, and, and they don't need to undergo a bone marrow biopsy. They don't need to have a PET scan or even sometimes CT scan, and we basically have a conversation about the disease, the chronic nature of it, the fact that they need to establish care and follow with a physician for <clears> the <throat> rest of their life because this disease right now is not considered to be curable, although it's very treatable and we have very effective treatment options that gives them a long-term remission and we can repeat them and there are other treatments. But the word cure, meaning that at some point we're able to tell a patient that they don't, they don't need to see a hematologist or oncologist, and we, we don't, we're not there yet for CLL or SLL. The, the goal and intention is that hopefully in the next few years we'll achieve that goal. But at the moment, just patients need to know that they need to establish a connection with someone who they trust. And I can tell you that CLL is a very dynamic field. Things are changing very quickly, and we are having access to many new drugs um, every year and you know maybe more than once a year. So it's very important for our patients to have access to someone who's focused on CLL, if that person is not their primary oncologist or hematologist, at least having someone as uh, that they can kind of reach out to for second opinions or at the time of important decisions is very critical. I did mention that we don't necessarily require a lot of tests, including imaging or bone marrow biopsy, but of course there are patients who do need those tests, so that would be again a clinical decision that will be made. Our patients ask about this disease stage. It's important. We have our own staging systems for CLL or SLL. But what's actually more relevant in, in blood cancers is not the clinical staging. I mean, we know staging from other types of cancer, for example, breast cancer or lung cancer or colon cancer. Staging is, is very important and has very important uh, prognostic value, meaning that it tells us how patients will do. In blood cancers in general, by definition, you have the disease all over the body, right? So 
uh, we do have our clinical staging systems. We use them all the time in clinical trials, in our practice. But what really matters is what's what's the molecular signature of cancer cells. And we have different ways of assessing those. We have chromosome tests called, one, one for example is FISH. FISH is a type of test that looks at some chromosome changes that are known to be important in CLL or SLL. So we look for those changes and we basically document whether or not patients have those abnormalities. We now have access to uh, sequencing some of the important genes in, in the cancer cells, and that gives us additional information. I, my first recommendation is th that in 2022, and the, for the reasons that I will mention shortly, it's important for, in my opinion, every patient soon after diagnosis to have that molecular information. Now, it may not change their treatment decisions at the moment, meaning that if I have a patient who has high-risk disease by molecular signature, I don't necessarily offer treatment right away, but it's important to know if they have high-risk disease because we are living in an era that we now have clinical trials that target patients with high-risk disease defined by molecular changes, and I'll get to it in a second. So as we, most of us know, the, the current approach after diagnosis is to wait and watch the patient very closely and only offer treatment when there is a clinical reason for it. And this is a concept that is sometimes difficult to uh, explain or convince the patient. They have a new diagnosis of leukemia or lymphoma. How are you not treating it? Why is it uh, that we're waiting and just watching it? And there is a good reason for it. In the past, we have tried and we have tested chemotherapy drugs and even some of the newer drugs. and when we, compare, when we compared the two group of patients who were randomized to receive either chemotherapy right at the time of diagnosis or waiting until there was a clinical reason for it, meaning that if they had low blood counts or if they had large lymph nodes or if they had any clinical problem because of their disease, then starting treatment. So the two groups were compared. And we did not see a benefit in a starting treatment right at the time of diagnosis, meaning that those patients did not live longer, which is, that's, that's the ultimate goal that we have in medicine. And they did get some side effects, of course, from the treatment. So our current strategy is to still wait and only offer treatment to patients who have a reason for receiving treatment. And again, I repeat, having low blood counts, having large or uh, symptomatic lymph nodes, meaning that lymph nodes could cause pain or discomfort or any other symptom. Or in general, I usually make it simple for my patients and just say, if the disease is bothering you, it bothers me and I need to treat it. So that is the current approach for that newly diagnosed patient. I just mentioned, and maybe I didn't mention, that we have moved almost completely from using chemotherapy in the first-line setting to using drugs that are not chemotherapy. So currently, we are, it's extremely rare. In my opinion, we should not be using chemotherapy in any patients in the first line. And a very reasonable question that patients may ask is that, okay, you just told me if you use chemotherapy right at the time of diagnosis, it doesn't help. But you also told me now we have new drugs that are not chemotherapy. What if we start these new drugs at the time of diagnosis? Maybe there is a benefit to it. And that's true. Maybe there is a benefit. And we are currently studying this question. We are, there is an important ongoing clinical trial funded by the National Cancer Institute. And 
it's open in many academic and non-academic uh, institutions in the U.S., that patients who have high-risk CLL, and you know there is a way of defining patients with high-risk CLL, but it's mainly by the molecular signature that I mentioned and some of the other clinical factors. So when we have a patient who has high-risk disease by that definition, we can offer them that clinical trial. And the clinical trial uses a very novel combination of a drug called venetoclax and an antibody drug called obinutizumab. And patients will be randomized to either receive that treatment right at the diagnosis or the other group, uh, which are determined by a randomized fashion, the other group will wait until they have clinical symptoms. So the intention is to see if having early intervention would be beneficial for these patients. So this study just opened uh, almost a year ago, and it's an ongoing. And for patients who live in, live in the U.S. and are within one year of their diagnosis of CLL, I highly encourage you to discuss this with your physicians. As I said, this study is open in many academic and non-academic centers in the U.S. But until we have the results of this study, our current practice is still to watch and wait and only offer treatment if there's a need for it. Let me repeat what are the indications for treatment. What do I mean by saying that when there's need for treatment? Again, the simple version is that if the disease causes any problems for the patient, what kinds of problem? This is a leukemia. This can impact the blood factory, meaning that the, the place that is responsible uh, for making blood cells for us is occupied by too many cancer cells for no reason. And there will be a time in some patients that the factory is not able to make enough of red cells or platelets or type of white cells that we need to protect, uh, to be protected against infection. So when you see your physician every three or four or six months uh, and you're on a watch and wait strategy, your physician will be looking at those cells. If red cell is low, it means that you're anemic. If platelet count is low, it means that you're at risk of uh, bleeding. And if the neutrophil, which is a type of white blood cell, is low, it means that you're at risk of infection. So in that case, and if we know for sure that the CLL or SLL is responsible for those changes, we do need to offer treatment. The other reason to start treatment is to make sure that patients are not having large or uh, large lymph nodes or spleen or liver or, or regardless of size, if they're having pain or discomfort or any, any problem with a large lymph node. It could be... Uh, a pressure effect on kidneys and that may cause kidney problem. It could be, you know, large lymph nodes can press on, on the stomach and cause appetite issues or weight loss. So these are type of assessments that happen during the watch and wait strategy, and then patients are offered treatment in that case. Now, very quickly, how do we decide about the type of treatment we are offering? Number one, I, in my opinion, there's no role for chemotherapy these days for first line or, or second line or later lines of therapy for CLL. You may hear that in selected patients, very small percentage, some may advocate for types of, for chemo regimens like FCR. I would say that um, you know the FCR regimen could be effective in some CLL patients, but it also comes at, at the cost of or risk of causing some secondary malignancy. So I would, uh, if, if that's a consideration, I would make sure that I understand the risks and benefits. But these days, we have non-chemotherapy options. And again, in my practice, for example, I do not offer the chemotherapy for the first-line treatment. 
we look at the molecular signature, as I mentioned, there are patients who are considered high risk. Uh, those are patients who have either a deletion or mutation in a gene called P53. Uh, the deletion is also referred to as deletion in 17P chromosome or the short arm of chromosome number 17. And when we talk about chromosomes, we're only talking about chromosomes within the cancer cells, so not, not other cells. And in patients who have one of those abnormalities, again, mutation of P53 or deletion of 17P, the best treatment strategy is to use a class of drug drugs called proton tyrosine kinase inhibitors or BTK inhibitors. And we currently have three drugs in this category. Two are already approved by the FDA, and the third one is expected to be approved in near future. So these drugs are, um, just to give you the idea and so you know the names, are ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and soon xanabrutinib will be added to this to this group, um, it is expected to be added. And uh, one of the drugs uh, would be uh, reasonable to start treatment. Drugs like acalabrutinib and xanobrutinib have a lower rate of side effects, but all three are reasonable for patients with 17P deletion. And the other option for patients, especially those who don't have these high-risk features, are so just one point to mention about the brutal tyrosine kinase inhibitors or the three drugs that I mentioned, these are indefinite therapies, meaning that once the patient starts taking the drug, they will be taking it until the drug doesn't work or stops working or has side effects that you have to stop it. So the, the, the designed treatment plan is a continuous therapy without a plan for, for stopping the drug. Now, in clinical practice, sometimes you make decisions to hold or stop treatments, and that's a different discussion, which is beyond this short presentation. But in principle, the, these drugs should be continued until there is, a, there is a clinical reason to stop it. We now have option uh, of non-chemotherapy treatments that are also time-limited, meaning that there, we, we give these novel drugs that are not chemotherapy, and then we are able to stop them at some point, uh, usually in the, after 12 months of combination therapy. So the, the most important example is a combination of venetoclax, which is an oral drug, a pill, in combination with obinutuzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against CD20, which is a marker or a protein on the surface of uh, um, cancer cell. Now... Um, the combination, and without going through the details, the combination is given for one year, and patients mm -hmm. stop treatment at the end of one year. And the nice thing about this combination is that with five-year follow-up, more than 63% or more than 60%, around 63% of patients are still in remission. Remember, this is only after one year of therapy. So the other four years, these patients were not taking any drugs. So that's another very important treatment option that, gives the opportunity of taking a drug for a short period of time, one year, and then stopping. Now, basically right now the discussion of either going with the combination of the two drugs for one year or taking one pill that's designed to be continuously taken, we do have that, we, we have that conversation when, when patients are at the point that they need treatment and, uh, you know, patients pick one of the two options. As I mentioned, for for our patients who have high-risk disease by molecular features, it is recommended that we use one of the BTK inhibitors because the clinical data looks 
looks better with, with those drugs. But it's not wrong to go the other way and use the venetoclax and uh, antibody combination. Um, so does COVID and the pandemic changes these um, strategies? I mean, at this time, I would say it does not. You know, we are at the point that most of our patients are vaccinated or unfortunately had the infection already. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, the key is to control the disease. Treating CLL improves the immune uh, system eventually. So at the moment, I don't use the COVID pandemic as a, as a factor to make treatment decisions. We did at some point early in the pandemic. I, I don't think there's any reason to go back and talk about it. I just end by pointing out that another strategy that will most likely be soon available, and it will be another form of combination of two pills that patients are able to take for a limited time, a year of combination, and then stopping treatment. And that would be a combination of venetoclax, a pill that was already part of the other fixed duration therapy that I mentioned. But that this time, combining it with another pill, ibrutinib, from the first family that I introduced. So this regimen is also something that patients take only for one year with the combination part at least, but also does not include any infusion. It's all oral. It's not approved by the FDA yet, but it is expected to be another option that will be available soon for our patients. And just in the last 30 seconds, there's a lot of research going on, and the idea is to combine these effective drugs, maybe two or three of them, and stop treatment at some point. And the goal and intention is to achieve a very deep remission, meaning that we don't want to see any cancer cells at any level by the best molecular tests that we have by the time we, we finish treatment after, let's say, one year or 18 months or whenever they achieve that deep remission, and then stop treatment. And the hope is to see that these remissions are ongoing, and hopefully, hopefully at some point, when we get to the point that patients are in remission for 10 plus years or so, then we can kind of start using the word cure, which is our intention. And I know my colleague will talk about some of the other treatment options in the relapse setting, and we eventually we're hoping to even bring them in the first line setting. So with that, I will end here, and I will be available for the Q&A section. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shadman. Um, just an excellent presentation and setting the stage actually for today's program. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Adam Kate. And Dr. Kate is assistant professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Kate will be addressing treatment of relapsed refractory CLL, retesting importance and determining treatment for second and third line treatments updates on clinical trials and their significance for CLL, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, quality of life, concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kate. Thank you for having me here today. It's always a pleasure to participate in this discussion. So let's uh, start off by talking about treatment of relapse refractory CLL. So, as Dr. Shadman had talked about, generally the frontline treatments for CLL are either going to be the BTK inhibitors, Ibrutinib, Acalabrutinib, and Zanabrutinib, or the BCL2 inhibitor, Venetoclax, which is paired with Obinutuzumab. So typically, um, when patients progress on one of those treatment regimens, the idea is to switch to the other treatment regimens they have not received. So if someone received a BTK inhibitor in the front line, usually they would get a BCL2 inhibitor in the neoclax in the second line, 
and vice versa. Um, the treatment of relapse disease has really been evolving over the last few years, where we do know that patients who stop a BTK inhibitor for an adverse event, as opposed to actually progressing on a BTK inhibitor, can be treated with a second-generation BTK inhibitor. So what do I mean by that? Patients who have been on a brutinib who may have stopped for joint pains may tolerate acalabrutinib or zanabrutinib if they need to be retreated. Um, and typically, if someone stops a brutinib for an adverse event, they have a few years where they may not need treatment. Uh, they might, their disease might be really well controlled. And similarly, in patients who received time-limited therapy with the nidoclax plus obinutuzumab, the um, infusion that Dr. Shaman had mentioned, um, and they did well on that regimen and were in a remission for a while, when their disease relapsed, um, they can reuse that venetoclax regimen. So I think that the treatment of relapse refractory is typically sequential from a BTK inhibitor to a BCL2 inhibitor, but there are certain circumstances where you can reuse the same medication that you got in the front line. All that being said, I do advise all of my patients to consider a clinical trial if they are if they have actively relapsed in one of those two medications. Um, and there are a lot of clinical trials now that are specifically developed for patients who um, are refractory to the BPK inhibitors or who have relapsed after venetoclax. So please inquire about clinical trials. Consider getting a second opinion at an academic center where they have a lot of clinical trials available. The other option uh, for relapse disease is actually just single-agent obinutuzumab, which I use on occasion. And usually I'll use that for frailer patients who may not tolerate uh, one of the other two drugs. Moving on to retesting, um, importance in determining treatment for second and third-line treatments. This is really a debatable topic, um, but there's one specific test that has been starting to be used more and more throughout the country, and that's actually sequencing of the BTK gene. So um, we mentioned earlier that we test for TP53 or deletion 70P as a measure of high-risk disease, but we also can now test to see whether or not a resistance mutation has developed in BTK, the target of our BTK inhibitors. And if a resistance mutation has started to develop in somebody who's on a BTK inhibitor, retreating with a BTK inhibitor just won't work. And so that is something that is being actively pursued throughout the country, is definitely being utilized at um, academic centers. And that's probably the only test uh, that I would consider might change your treatment in the second or third line. Other things to consider um, when patients progress after frontline treatment um, is there's always a concern, and always my patients always ask me about, uh, do I have Richter's transformation? So Richter's transformation is when CLL turns into a more aggressive lymphoma, typically diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but it can also transform into Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I know this is a concern of my patients because uh, the, the Richter's transformation um, is um, a, a very aggressive event um, and leads to more aggressive therapies. And uh, mostly my patients are concerned uh, that this might happen after receiving their first-line treatment. Uh, so if I am concerned about Richter's transformation in my patients, I usually get a PET-CT to help me determine if this is just CLL progression or Richter's transformation progression. So that's another test that I sometimes get at progression if I am worried about Richter's transformation. Um, just to give you another sentence on when I might be worried about Richter's transformation is in somebody who has uh, terrible B symptoms, uh, fevers, chills, weight loss, night sweats, fatigue at progression, or if they have lymph nodes that are growing faster than I would expect them to. 
Other than that, the only other testing that one uh, that 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 really would determine what treatment to give somebody uh, that they were progressing is considering again treating for deletion 17P or TPP3 if it hasn't been done earlier, um, because as uh, Dr. Maziar um, had. Uh, mentioned, patients who have high-risk disease might benefit from continuous BTK inhibitor at relapse as opposed to venetoclax. So all that being said, uh, retesting is really a debatable topic. I sometimes consider get the, getting the BTK mutation in patients who are being treated with the BTK inhibitors. I sometimes consider getting a PET-CT to rule out Richter's, and I sometimes uh, consider getting genetic testing with the deletion 17P and TPP3 to help me determine if someone should go on the venetoclax or BTK inhibitor in the second line if they haven't received that drug in the first line. Moving on to updates on clinical trials and their significance for CLL. So I want to highlight that clinical trials are really integral to all cancers, even CLL, and that if you're interested in getting it, going on to a clinical trial, you should talk to your physician about it, and you should consider getting a second opinion at a cancer center, sorry, an academic center that has a lot of clinical trials available. Um, another thing that I like to highlight when talking about clinical trials in patients is that in typical cancer clinical trials, you will not be randomized to a placebo. There are certain circumstances where you, where you are, but not really in CLL. Um, so if you enter onto a clinical trial, talk to your doctor about whether or not you're getting randomized to a placebo or a sugar pill, but most likely you are not. 99.9% of the time, you'll be randomized to a drug that works um, and that we're just trying to see if our new regimen might work better than our old regimen. So real quick, just going through the different phases of clinical trials to, to make you more knowledgeable about it. A phase one trial is typically either a first-in-human study where we give a drug to patients with CLL for the first time, um, or it could be using a drug that has been well-established in another disease type and using it in CLL for the first time. And the point of the phase one study is to see how safe the drug is um, and ultimately get to a dose that we think is the most efficacious. So usually in phase one studies, the drug is usually up titrated um, over the course of different dosages until we get to the safest dose that we expect to have be the most useful for our phase two setting. The phase two uh, clinical trials are usually smaller than phase three. They're usually single arm, meaning that you always get the same drug. And we're looking to see if um, the first signs of efficacy, does the drug work? And then phase three um, clinical trials, we usually randomize the drug versus what we already know to be standard of care to see if it's superior, works better than what's standard of care. So those are the summaries for our clinical trials in CLL. And it is very important uh, to consider enrolling on a clinical trial for CLL as that will help us determine um, really what the future holds for CLL. How, how do we improve on what we already have? Um, and there are other benefits to going on to a clinical trial for our patients. Oftentimes, uh, patients can get free drug on clinical trials, so that's something definitely to ask um, your doctor about, too, is if you can go on to a clinical trial that offers free drug, which is an incentive. So ultimately, clinical trials offer opportunities to improve what we already know about CLL, helping to make improvements in survival, treatment-free time, and quality of life for our patients. That being said, let's move on to talking about uh, telehealth and telemedicine, uh, quality of life, and open notes and follow-up appointments. So, in general, the COVID pandemic really expedited our use of telemedicine. Um, but unfortunately, at this point in the pandemic, a lot of the rules that allowed for telemedicine across the country are being rolled back. And in my anecdotal experience, telemedicine is not as widely as used now as it was during the beginning of pandemic. 
especially when, um, as providers, we're not allowed to practice across state lines. And so during the pandemic, they allowed us to, act, to, to, to practice across state lines, but a lot of those um, laws are being rolled back. And so if you are seeing your physician and they're in the same state in you, there's a chance that you get a telemedicine. But typically, if it's across state lines, it, it hasn't been um, allowed anymore. There are certain circumstances that it can be allowed, but I would talk to your physician about the availability of doing telemedicine. The good thing about telemedicine and CLL is that, for the most part, as we all know, CLL, we really monitor lab results, right? And lab results are really the key to telling us what's going on with the disease. And so if you have lab results and we're able to talk to patients about how they're feeling, there's a lot that can be done using telehealth over the phone or the video. So telemedicine usually involves a telephone conversation or a video visit using a variety of different methods. Um, there's usually access through the uh, electronic medical record for the patients, or it can just be a telephone call. And also I, we used to use Zoom or Microsoft Teams as ways to get in touch with our patients as well. So before you log in uh, to your televisit, make sure that the technology works however it is that you are logging in. Usually you'll receive some kind of instruction from your provider before the appointment. Um, and uh, make sure that you know how to use this, that way you can log in on time. Um, in terms of Open Notes, which we'll switch gears here, uh, Open Notes is a research initiative that was started out of Harvard. Um, and it is encouraging physicians to share their notes with their patients. Um, this would allow patients to enable their full legal right to their medical record. Um, there has been more and more data coming out supporting this initiative, showing that patients who have access to their notes, understand their medical condition more, have more control over their health decisions, and are able to catch errors or inaccuracies in their record. Uh, the reason why this is getting implemented now um, is that uh, patients, as I said, have a legal right to request and receive copies of their medical records through uh, the HIPAA law. Previously, getting this information took a long time and cost money. Uh, but now with this new legislation, which uh, was enacted in April of 2021, immediate access is required, um, and it can be done through the electronic medical records. Therefore, a physician's notes, test results, imaging results, or pathology results, as they are finalized, they can be made immediately available to the patient, regardless of whether or not the physician or provider has been able to chance to look at the results themselves yet. So that comes to the main concern with open notes, is that patients can find results um, from their lab tests, from their imaging, from whatever, maybe before their physician has even seen it making, it, making them have to interpret complex test results that they may not understand. One way to avoid this is just not to look at your test results, but now that they're available to everybody, it's really hard to do that and takes a lot of self-discipline. That being said, uh, there's been a lot of good research out of Open Notes. Um, about 98% of patients thought Open Notes was a good idea. About 70% 70, 70 of oncologists thought it was a good idea. 44% um, of oncologists thought that patients would be confused by their notes whereas only 4%, only 4%, single digits, the patients reported feeling confused by reading their notes. Um, in other studies, the benefit of open notes was clear with over 90% of patients saying that it improved their understanding of the disease. Um, however, there is a subset of patients that did not read something they would not have wanted to know about, which caused them to become even more anxious um, and distressed in the studies that led to, the, uh, led to open notes being a thing. Overall, uh, many providers, including in myself, are finding that open notes help patients stay informed. Many patients are reading their prior notes before coming in to see the patients, allowing them to understand the disease and follow up on their to-do items listed in the notes. Um, my personal opinion is that uh, open notes is a good thing, um, and I think that it helps communication between patients and providers and lets them uh, really get a good understanding of the disease and come and prepare for their visits to have a really um, a nice conversation. So 
a segue here too is that it's really important to follow up with your healthcare uh, system, your healthcare team, especially when understanding and interpreting open notes. So um, I'll give an example here that you know in CLL we test for the for IGHB status and it can either be mutated or unmutated. And if you weren't aware about what this test was, you might read in your chart that you have IGHV unmutated status, which sounds scary, but in fact, um, sorry, you can have IGHV mutated status, which sounds scary, but in fact, the unmutated is the one that typically um, is associated with a high-risk variable. So this confusion can lead to confusion amongst patients, and so I think it's important that if you do see something that you're worried about, you should send the messages over to your doctor through my chart or whatever way that you do it. Um, and be prepared to talk about these questions that you might have at your next appointment. Um, personally, I try to schedule my tests around a follow-up visit, so that way if a result comes in, we can have a conversation about it um, in real time. So uh, let's end this conversation by talking about uh, quality of life, and I'll briefly mention some updates in COVID as well. So in the past 10 years, um, we have many new approved agents for CLL, and I think that we have enough medications where we can find the right medication for each patient. Um, right doesn't necessarily mean the most effective, and in fact, sometimes you might need to pick a drug that may not be as effective, but patients are able to stay and tolerate on for a longer amount of time, which might translate into a better um, outcome in general. So if something isn't working for you, you should really talk with your physician about it to find the right drug that's the right one for you. Um, also, this is a chronic disease, and so our patients are living with this disease for years, and it's important to live your life to the fullest during this time and to really maximize the quality during this time as well. Um, aside from medication-induced toxicity, many of our patients are suffering with anxiety, especially during the watch and wait period, not knowing what treatment will be like or what the future may hold. And so I think discussing watch and wait um, talking about concurrent medications that you're on, talking about other things that are going on in your life is important uh, to do with your, with, your, with your provider. And even though um, a lot of our drugs do come with various different side effects, I think that we have enough drugs now with a very good side effect profile that we can switch patients to. And overall, as I said, I think that we have enough drugs now that if something is not working for you, that it's important to talk to your doctor about it. So that way they can potentially switch you off that drug and put you on something that might work for you. Uh, last but not least, let's quickly talk about COVID, give you some COVID updates. Um, so right now, uh, if someone gets COVID, uh, there are still two uh, drugs available, usually given as an outpatient, Paxlovid, which is an oral medication given for five days, or monoclonal antibodies, which usually is given as a one-time infusion. Uh, typically, if my patient with CLL gets COVID and they're on treatment, I typically use the monoclonal antibody because Paxlovid can interact with ibrutinibid, calibrinib, and various other treatments. Whereas if I have a CLL patient who gets COVID, I typically, who is not on treatment, I typically treat them with Paxlovid. But ultimately, it's up to your provider to decide what drug to put someone on if they get COVID. There has been some reports of Paxlovid rebound where uh, patients who take the Paxlovid for five days might experience symptoms that recur five days later. Um, if this happens to you, it's important to talk uh, to your doctor about it. Um, and, but I don't think this is a reason not to treat somebody with Paxlovid. There was a recent study uh, to reassure everybody uh, that examined patients with CLL um, in the era of the Omicron variant and found that our patients with CLL are doing much better than the original uh, COVID wave. 
Um, and so I don't think this is reason to, you know, just toss our masks aside, but it is, uh, it's, uh, it is a sign that we are, are, are doing better with COVID and that we have really good treatments that help our patients not get serious COVID needing hospitalizations and long, you know, supportive care outcomes. Um, and ultimately, um, we are just not seeing as many sick patients with COVID anymore. Our patients aren't getting severely ill, um, although with our patients with CLL, we are still very worried. Um, but we should be reassured that we do have very good treatments for COVID now, um, and we're not seeing as many um, severe illness. Um, last but not least, um, there's two other medications on the market for prevention of COVID and prevention of severe COVID. Uh, one is the new booster. So the FDA just approved the new booster that should target the new Omicron variant. Um, that should be available any day now. We are recommending that all our patients get this booster, um, but you should probably wait about three months since getting COVID if you've had COVID recently to get the booster because we've seen that in general the booster doesn't enlist as good as response if someone's had COVID within the last three months. The other drug to look out for and talk to your provider about is Evusheld. So Evusheld is monoclonal antibodies against COVID that work for about six months. Um, our patients are doing quite well with this. It's a good safety profile. Um, and typically we can give this every six months. Um, the only people that I don't give Evusheld is to our patients with a cardiac history, because there was a small risk of worsening chance of getting a heart attack if you had a previous heart attack with Evusheld. So once again, um, talk to your doctor about getting Evusheld. Um, and then also I would consider getting a booster, the new booster when it comes out, and consider getting it about three months after your last COVID infection if you had COVID recently. Um, so I just want to end by saying this really exciting time in CLL. We've got lots of new treatments for relapse disease. We've got lots of new treatments for COVID. Um, and I think that uh, hopefully with time, uh, we can start using that cure word. But I think that we're still a little bit away from that. And I think that we are really excited about all the new drugs that are currently in the pipeline. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Patel. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Patty Kaufman, um, and Patricia Kaufman is a CEO, is a co-founder of the CL Society, and she'll briefly be describing to you the CL Society's free programs, including practical support resources um, to cope with CLL, and give you information about their website as well. So I'm going to turn this over to Ms. Kaufman for just a brief um, description of the uh, um, CL Society's programs. Thank you so much, Carolyn. For over 10 years, CLL Society has offered patient-friendly, physician-curated education programs and support designed to help CLL patients and their caregivers advocate for their best possible care, as we believe that smart patients get smart care. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a patient for a long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage of the journey all of our programs and services are free of charge. A couple of our flagship programs are CLL Society's COVID-19 Action Plan. This is a hands-on instruction about how to handle the various scenarios that may, that may confront patients about, CLL, about COVID-19. Since the onset of the pandemic, CLL Society has realized the seriousness of the threat posed by COVID-19 to our vulnerable immunocompromised community. CLL Society offers this action plan and constantly updates it, updates it with ever-evolving data and recommendations related to the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Please check in often for updates. Test before treat. As has been mentioned already on this call, it is critical for CLL patients to 
receive testing both before the first treatment as well as before every subsequent line of therapy for their CLL. So we've designed the Test Before Treat education campaign. Our handy downloadable Test Before Treat one-pager outlines the three most important predictive tests which you've heard about today. What is the value of these tests? Many biological factors can vary from patient to patient. A medication that might work for you may be useless in the treatment of another CLL patient. If a therapy will not work for you, it is, of course, valuable for you to have that information in advance. Download our handy test before treat one pager, print it out, take it to your doctor, and use it as a conversation starter when discussing treatment options. If your doctor is not familiar with these critical tests, that will be a tip-off that you are not in the care of a CLL expert. Please find a doctor who is familiar as quickly as possible because your life may depend upon it. Expert access. There is a proven survival advantage to having a CLL expert as part of your treatment team. The CLL Society recognizes that this is not always possible. If you are not in the care of a CLL expert and you are concerned that you may not be receiving optimal care for your CLL, please apply for CLL Society's free second opinion consult with a CLL expert. It is easy for you to qualify. You need only to meet the following criteria. You must be living in the United States. You must have a diagnosis of CLL, and you must not be currently in the care of a CLL expert. We ask no financial or insurance questions. It would be impossible to exaggerate the importance of being connected to other CLL patients and their caregivers, so we implore you don't spend another month alone. CLL Society has almost 3,000 CLL patients and caregivers registered for monthly attendance, and there are approximately 40 support groups across the country. Although these groups meet virtually via Zoom, there are distinct advantages to your being registered in the one that is as local to you as possible. Your fellow CLL patients and caregivers are a vital source of information regarding local physicians, programs, and services. I have two major announcements today. The first is the CLL Society is thrilled to share that late in the springtime this year, we completed and debuted CLL Society's completely redesigned website. And here are a couple of features that you might find very useful. Number one, we know that some of you will come to our site already knowing what you are looking for and wanting to get there fast. So to meet that need, we've positioned brightly colored, fast-find, quick-link buttons right on the homepage of our website indicating our most popular content, and you can get to it with one click. Some examples of this are normal lab values, ask the experts, expert access, upcoming events, and how to register to join a support group. Number two, apropos to today's cancer care meeting with Dr. Shadman and Katai, we want you to know that, our, that we reorganized our treatment and research content by treatment status. We assume that when you come to our website, you know whether you're newly diagnosed or have failed one or more lines of treatment, and you need to learn as much as possible about treatment options. Just by clicking on the drop-down menus, we can help you get your bearings for the stage of your illness that you are in now and prompt you to think of ways to get better care that, you, that may not have occurred to you before. 
As an example, under newly diagnosed, we have watch and wait. What do you do during this period of watch and wait? We suggest that you bring all your past immunizations up to date. We suggest that you build a great CLL care team. We suggest that you join a support group. If you need to move on to later lines of treatment, click on the drop-down menus for later lines of treatment and get additional detail. And last but not least, my second major announcement is that the CLL Society knows that despite the fact that CLL treatments are better than ever, and despite the fact that CLL patients are living longer than ever, CLL is not a solved problem. This year, we are excited to introduce to you our first ever recipient of the financial award that comes uh, that is being invested in young investigators. Our first recipient is Dr. Christine Ryan. Her research proposal was titled, BH3 Profiling to Identify Novel Vulnerabilities in Richter's Syndrome. Dr. Ryan obtained her medical degree at Stanford University, and she is currently a senior hematology oncology fellow specializing in CLL, SLL, and lymphomas at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston under the mentorship of Dr. Matthew Davids. Please see our interesting, in-depth interview with Dr. Ryan on our website. And finally, save the date. Wednesday, October 26th, CLL Society will present playing CLL-SLL chess, planning your therapy moves. Treating CLL-SLL is a little bit like a chess game, as one needs to always be thinking a few moves ahead. Most treatments for CLL-SLL are not curative, and when relapse occurs, it is important that you have a plan in place in your back pocket with some options that can knock back the disease again. Join CLL, SLL expert Dr. Susan O'Brien and 20-year CLL survivor Terry Evans as they explain the CLL, SLL treatment landscape, what is known about it, what is unknown, and describe how you can better participate in shared decision-making with your healthcare provider. All of our webinars are archived. Our website address is www.clsociety.org. Stay safe and be well. CLL Society is invested in your long life. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for having me here today. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Patty, for uh, speaking on this program today. Um, and we appreciate um, your uh, collaboration on the program today, partnership. And um, thank you. Thanks so much. And wonderful resource. Um, I am going to just give a very brief description of Cancer Care Services so we can move right on to the Q&A. Um, and um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and um, we are accessible by calling our HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673, or our website, www.cancercare.org. We offer a host of services from uh, practical and financial and co-payment assistance. Um, we also offer online support groups. Um, and um, we also um, offer um, case management services. And we, um, in addition to that, offer these workshops, about 80 of them a year. And we also offer um, uh, publications. And you also can listen to podcasts of these programs. So for today's program, there will be a podcast available that you can listen to um, if you want to listen to it again or share it with a friend. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. And I'm going to ask Cody to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to move on 
to the many questions that we have that people are asking um, so we can actually um, be sure to address your questions um, that we have. Um, and so um, we have a question, um, um, and this one is for Dr. Kate. Um, can I get the newer version of Evushed sooner than six months from the first version shot? So it's the same version for Evusheld. Um, the originally Evusheld was given at half the dose that they found was necessary. And so originally we were giving a lower dose and then patients who had the lower dose were invited back to get the full dose. And uh, the dose that's currently approved is the same Evusheld given every six months. So it's still six months. The, the new version is actually the booster that I was talking about. And so there's no new version of Evusheld. It's the new version of the booster. Uh, which should be available any day now. Um, in terms of when to get the new version of the booster, if you've got another booster recently, I probably would say three months from your last booster, but that's, there's no really good data to, to guide us there. So um, I would say probably three months since your last booster, three months if you had COVID. Um, but if you wanted to get the booster, the new booster, sooner than three months, it's probably fine. There's not much, not much data to help us decide what to do with that. Excellent. And... Um, uh, for Dr. Shadman, can you explain the difference between BTK inhibitor and treatments, Ibrutinib versus Venetoclax? So the difference between BTK inhibitors and Venetoclax. So, well, BTK inhibitors are a class of medications, and currently we have three drugs. As I mentioned, <clears throat> two are currently approved for CLL1 is coming soon. These drugs basically block an enzyme that's important for cancer cells to survive. And, you know, by blocking that enzyme, we basically stop the, the um, kind of growth and kind of existence of these cancer cells. And that's why you have to continue taking it so the, the cancer cells will not survive. So that's the BTK inhibitor. Uh, class. And as I mentioned, there are three drugs. The differences between the three drugs are mainly in form of uh, side effect profile. The two newer ones, acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib, tend to have a lower side effect, uh, basically, incidence. So they're better tolerated than ibrutinib. Venetoclax belongs to a different class of CLL drugs. And what it does, it basically uh, <coughs> induces death in cancer cells, which is a good thing. And it does it in, in such an effective way that, as I mentioned, you can actually give it for a limited duration, you know, one year, and then stop. And because of the remissions being so deep and some patients don't require treatment for years, and I mentioned that 60-plus percent after five years. So totally different drugs. They have different way of working, and they have different safety or side effect profile. And that's, in fact, the reason why we thought about combining them together and basically using the both drugs and using different mechanisms and kind of even go for disease in a, in a in a more strong uh, kind of fashion. So, and the, the combination of studies that I briefly mentioned are basically are based on using venetoclax with one of the BTK inhibitors, and I mentioned three, but there are more in development. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Kate, I have CLL, wondering about any studies on brain fog and why I talk to myself a lot. I don't believe there's any current studies looking at brain fog in CLL. 
Um, in general, CLL can cause fatigue, and so I know some of my patients have different ways that they experience fatigue, um, including maybe having some memory loss or uh, just not feeling themselves and feeling like they can't, you know, get through a hard day of work. Um, even if their work is not, you know, exertional, it's, you know, sitting and thinking about something else. And so in general, um, brain fog, memory loss, um, talking to oneself, those are not typical um, CLL symptoms. And so if you are experiencing those symptoms, I would talk to your doctor about that um, and consider alternative uh, reasons why you may be experiencing that. Um, but um, as I said, fatigue is a classic sign and symptom of CLL, and patients can experience fatigue in various different ways. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Shadman, what are the considerations to be labeled a high-risk disease? I'm sorry. The question was about like, how we what, define um, high-risk. So, yeah, what are the considerations to be labeled a high-risk disease? Yeah, so the, the main thing, as I mentioned, is that molecular um, profile. So we do look at the, the chromosome changes. We look at the mutations. So basically, to be more specific on that chromosome test, if there is deletion in the short arm of chromosome number 17, that that considered that is considered as a high-risk feature. You could have mutation, or let me just explain the difference between deletion and mutation. So when you have a gene that's located in, in a specific location in the chromosome, let's say, and that gene could be gone, we call it deletion, it's deleted, it's not there. Or it could be there, but it could be different than what it should be, and we call it mutated, okay? So the, the, either way, that gene is not functioning well either because it doesn't exist or because it's there, but it's just different. So that's why that P53 gene deletion and mutation are both important, right? Now, so those are the most important high-risk features, regardless of what treatment we use, even today, those changes are considered important. The next level would be looking at the mutational status of the IGHV gene, the, the, one, the, 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 fact, the, the example that Dr. Qatar used as the, you know, when you have the mutation, it's actually a kind of a favorable feature. And if you don't have the mutation, for some treatments, it's considered a, an adverse, adverse uh, factor, meaning that if you use chemotherapy, for example, patients who don't have the mutation, their response will be shorter. And maybe there's some indication that in some of the new drugs, uh, for some of the new drugs, that mutation is also important, but that's not confirmed yet. So these are the most important features. There are some other clinical features as well, like you know the measurements of some some uh, proteins in the blood. But I would I would kind of say that the molecular changes, either detected by a mutation analysis or the chromosome test, are the most important reasons to call a disease high risk in, in case of CLL or SLL. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Katai, how long after the incidental diagnosis? Do symptoms develop and require treatment? Is there an average time? So that really depends. Um, so in general, there, so there was a recent publication that looked at multiple different factors to try to see what predicts uh, when treatment is required. So um, taking a step back, treatment is, always, is not always required when symptoms first start occurring. Usually we wait for the symptoms to interfere with someone's ability to enjoy life. They have to be pretty severe to consider starting treatment, um, and that is also really uh, de depends on the patient as well. <clears throat> so in general, as I was saying, 
there was a recent article that looked at time to first treatment, and they looked at three different factors. And so this is what I kind of guide my patients and tell them. Uh, the three different factors are a white blood cell count greater than 15, IGHV unmutated status, and whether or not the doctor can feel lymph nodes. So if you have none of those variables, uh, on average, patients' time to first treatment from diagnosis was greater than five years. If you have one variable, it was uh, between three to five years, uh, two variables around three years, and all three variables less than three years. Um, so talk to your doctor about it. They should be able to give you a better understanding of when your first treatment might be required. Um, but that's the general rule of thumb. Um, I see a lot of patients who don't abide by that rule of thumb. Um, and in general, also, I look at the kinetics of the disease, meaning that if someone's white count has been stable for, you know, 10 years, it's probably going to stay stable for a good amount of years um, moving forward. But if their white count is increasing, um, fast over the course of one year, they're probably going to be requiring treatment sometime soon. Um, so once again, it's, it's really hard to predict. I use those three factors, and I look at how fast uh, lymph nodes are getting bigger or how fast the white count is rising to help uh, guide my patients about when I think they might require treatment. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. They've been phenomenal. I want to thank all of our participants who've also been amazing in terms of the questions you've asked. Um, and. Um, I have to say this has been a rather remarkable program, and although we've done this uh, program on this topic before, I would say this is by far uh, one of the best we've ever done, and, um, um, and lots of new information and very inspiring um, from our speakers. Um, I do, um, in wrapping this up, just want to go over with all of you that we, in concluding this program, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with, um, with CLL. Um, or with any type of leukemia or cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. And who is, who is in that support team? Well, you certainly have your healthcare team. And so any question or concern you may have. So today, if you asked a question or have a question yet to ask or um, are in queue to ask a question, didn't get to ask your question, please take all that back to your healthcare team. Even if you asked a question today, please go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. And they're a wonderful resource for you. Also, for those of you who listen to the program today but would like to listen to it again, you can always listen to the podcast of it again. Also, I highly recommend, of course, the CLL Society um, as a resource for all of you. They specialize as, an, as a nonprofit organization in providing the most updated information for you. So that's another resource for you. Um, and so um, very important that you know that there are places you can go to when you are feeling alone or when you're feeling like you don't quite know what to do, of course, your healthcare team is always first, CLL Society, and of course, Cancer Care. You can also, those are organizations that you can contact and your team, your healthcare team is really, and some of you did ask some questions about um, you're feeling different during your treatment, and again, bring that to your healthcare team as our speakers recommended. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.